I read an article this past week in, that was published in Psychology Today about the potential negative implications of playing favorites among your children. The purpose of the article was uh, to warn parents against uh, treating certain children a certain way to the exclusion of other children. And perhaps you're thinking that this new dad of two is really on top of things, trying to read ahead and prepare and get ready for parenting and the growing family. But let me assure you uh, that that is not the case here. I'm sure it would be nice to think that your, your pastor was, uh, had it all put together. But in this case, I, I promise you, it is not the case. Maybe when baby number two begins sleeping through the night, I will expand my leisurely reading list a little bit. But in the meantime, I'll probably only come across things like this uh, as I think about and pray about and plan for the always coming Sunday morning, as was the case here. But families have faced many difficulties because of Uh, this very issue, playing favorites. You think of Isaac and Rebekah, the Old Testament, issues that they face with Jacob and Esau. But not only is playing favorites and showing favoritism detrimental to an individual family unit, but it's also difficult, detrimental to a, a collective family unit as well, such as the family of God, the body of Christ, the church. And we're warned about it strongly in our scripture for today, in our biblical text for today, that cautions us against, that warns us against showing favoritism in the body of Christ. I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to James chapter 2 as we continue our sermon series, Living Faith. A study in James, James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We've spent a few weeks now working through James chapter 1, and as I mentioned last week, we're going to begin biting off some much larger sections of Scripture in the days ahead, beginning with today. So I would encourage you to, to open a Bible, to open your Bible if you have one, if you don't have one, to look for one, in the pew rack in front of you so that we can look at God's Word together. But as we start a new chapter in this letter, this short five-chapter letter, it would be a good time for us to remind ourselves that in the, the original copies, the original manuscripts of these letters and books that comprise the New Testament, there were no chapter and verse divisions. These were later added. Uh, for our benefit as readers, and we're certainly glad that they were. But that being said, chapter 2, in the subject matter that we'll dive into this morning, flows right out of chapter 1, and specifically the end of chapter 1. We read last week in James chapter 1, verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. We saw as we studied that text together, as we looked at God's word together there, that 
external religion, external practices of religion and forms of religion, Scripture says, are worthless if they are divorced from inward transformation. God desires His followers, His people, to to be characterized by a heart that is set on Him, affections that are on Him, a life that's been changed by the love of Jesus Christ. And then then is characterized by mercy on the helpless in the world. Mercy on the least of these in the world at any given point in, in any given culture. And I believe that it's right out of that context, right out of that subject matter that our passage for this morning flows. So James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And Those of you that use the sermon outline on the back of your bulletin are probably wondering if we're going to be out of here or if I'm going to be finished talking by zero dark 30 tonight. But I believe we are. We're going to fly through this passage together. There's a number of truths here, and I just didn't know how to do this text justice any other way. So look with me at James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers and sisters... Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of Him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. The one who said, for he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's bow and ask God to guide our time in His Word this morning. Father God in heaven, we thank You for the opportunity to to openly and without fear open Your Word this morning and Hear what it is that you have for us on this day as your people that make up this church. Father, lead us, guide us, direct us into the truth. May you be glorified in our time in your word. May you teach us. May you challenge us. May you convict us. May you transform us by the power of your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The first truth that I believe we see in this passage of Scripture and really the primary truth that James wants to communicate through this passage is this, that there is no place for favoritism among Christians. There's no place 
for favoritism among Christians. This is the central truth that he wants to make sure he communicates in this section that that is taken to heart by his readers and by his listeners here in this section of his letter. And then in the verses that follow, I believe that he gives two primary, two foundational reasons why that must be the case. And then in between, just like a well-garnished cheeseburger has all sorts of different toppings and layers that contribute to the overall taste and help define why it tastes so good, he gives all sorts of sub-reasons in these 13 verses that also contribute to his point, that also communicate why it is so important that, that the church not show favoritism. There's no place for favoritism among Christians. And the first sub-point that I think we see here in verse 1 is that following the Lord Jesus is incompatible with showing favoritism. Following the Lord Jesus is incompatible with showing favoritism. Look back at verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Now James is pretty clear here who it is that must adhere to this principle. Who it is that must not show favoritism. It's believers in Jesus Christ. It's followers of Christ. It's Christians. It's the body of Christ. It's the church. Must not engage in this sort of behavior. Now I I want us to see two two things in verse 1 that I think are important. It may seem small, but I think contribute to his overall point. And, And the first is the way that he addresses these believers. He uses a phrase that that he often uses in James. He says, my brothers and sisters. And the Greek word that's used here uh, is adelphoi. It's a masculine plural noun that literally would be translated as brothers or, or fellow brothers. And here the NIV from which I'm reading this morning translates this, my brothers and sisters. But don't Don't be alarmed by that. This is not an attempt to erase gender identity uh, in Scripture. Uh, That is taking place in other ways in our culture today, but that is not what Bible translators are doing here. Because when this word is used for for, for, uh, a group of believers in the New Testament, it's used for mixed company. It's used for men and women who comprise the body of Christ. And so and perhaps you have another translation that just says brothers. And if you do, you likely have a footnote in your Bible that says that the Greek word used here for brothers is also translated, uh, also means uh, sisters as well, also includes women. And so why, why do I even bring this up? Why is this important? I believe that James is subtly making a point by the way he's addressing his audience. My brothers and sisters, he's reminding them that not only do they have a new identity as Christians before God in heaven, as children of God, but they also have a new identity with each other in the body of Christ. They're family. They're brothers and sisters. And as such, they they ought not be characterized by favoritism, but they ought to be characterized by love for each other. The 18th century theologian and preacher and even hymn writer John Wesley is said to have had a dream one day that he was at the gates of hell. He knocked on the gates and asked this question. He said, are there 
Are there any Roman Catholics in this place? Yes, many was the response. Are there any Church of England men? Yes, many. Are there any Presbyterians? Yes, many. Are there any Wesleyans? Referring to his own followers who later began the the Methodist church. The response was the same. Yes, many. Discouraged and dismayed by the response, he began to turn his steps upward and found himself at the gates of paradise, the gates of heaven, and began to ask the same questions. Are there any Wesleyans here in heaven? No, was the response. Astonished. He couldn't believe it. Well, who then is here? The response he had was, we, we don't know any of, any of the names that you've just described. The only name of individuals that we know here is Christian. Fathers of Christ. And if you know Christ, if you've repented of your sin and trusted in Christ for salvation, then you have a new relationship with other believers in Christ. We're family ought to be characterized by love for each other. Now, the second thing that I want us to see in verse 1 is the way that Jesus is described. Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. You know, ascribing glory, ascribing splendor, majesty, significance to, to, to individuals in this world. And really, that's what favoritism is, is ascribing too much glory to certain individuals beyond what is simply due them. And I think what James is saying, by describing the Lord Jesus this way, is saying that only Jesus is the one who is truly glorious. The one who left His glorious home in heaven, His place of prestige in heaven on the throne, and came to this lowly by comparison, sin-stricken, realm of creatures called the earth made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on the cross Philippians chapter 2 verses 7 and 8 a text that required just beautifully saying for us but to profess faith in that one Jesus Christ, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, and then to be characterized by favoritism is hypocritical, to say the least. After all, if Jesus would have only regarded us based on our externals, which literally is is the prohibition here against showing favoritism, things like wealth, things like appearance, things like social status, If Jesus would have only acted based on those things, He never would have left His glorious home in heaven in the first place. Following the Lord Jesus is incompatible with showing favoritism. We also see here that prejudice towards the rich is unjust. Prejudice towards the rich is unjust. And using prejudice here in the sense of favoritism, Showing favoritism, showing prejudice towards a certain group of people in a positive way, toward the rich here, is unjust. Look back at verses 2 through 4. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. 
If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James offers this illustration of two visitors, two different visitors coming into the gathering or the assembly of believers. In other words, when the church is being the church, comes into the church, and one obviously outwardly has a lot of wealth. His appearance is nice. He's dressed sharp. He has resources. He's a man of influence. Another man comes in who's in dirty clothes or shabby clothes, filthy clothes. The two, the two men are treated in totally different ways. Rich man is told to sit here in a place of honor, and the poor man or the man dressed in shabby clothes is told to stand here, probably in the back, or to sit here on the floor, taking the position of a servant. James says, if if you treat people this way, you're becoming a, a judge characterized by evil thoughts. Something that is not pleasing to God. We know this is not the character of God. We know this is not the way that God operates. For Leviticus chapter 19 verse 15, He commanded His people, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor, favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. In other words, don't be an unjust judge, which is exactly what He's describing in the situation here in James chapter 2. It's a hypothetical situation, a hypothetical illustration, but we know based on the context, obviously things like this were taking place in order for James to write about them. And so because we are commanded in God's word not to show favoritism, let's strive to treat all equally. Strive to treat all equally particularly those that, like in the context that James was writing, particularly those that come into our assembly, particularly those that come into this place as the gathered body of Christians. Now, two cautions, two things that I think this passage is not communicating or not saying. Scripture is not saying here or elsewhere that there aren't certain individuals for whatever reason, based on circumstances or position, that aren't worthy of certain honor. This is not a prohibition against showing people honor. Nor on the other extreme is it a prohibition uh, against uh, pointing out sin. It's not teaching. Scripture does not teach that, that we're to embrace or tolerate or, or put up with or accept professing believers in Jesus that, that show no remorse for sin, the unrepentant sin. This is not communicating an ideology of socialism or communism where everybody is exactly the same and given the exact same thing and regarded in the exact same way. That's not James' point here. So what is his point? His point is that we must not show partiality, that we must not show favoritism based off external things, things like wealth, things like appearance, things like social status, things like power and influence. Strive to treat all equally. We must not show favoritism. Now, why is this the case? Why is this so important for believers in Jesus Christ, for you and I as followers of Christ, to to not be characterized by favoritism? And then he gives this 
these points in the verses that follow. And the first is this. Christians must shun favoritism because it is inconsistent with the attitude of God. Christians must shun favoritism because it is inconsistent with the attitude of God. Look back at verses 5 through 7. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of Him to whom you belong? Favoritism is inconsistent with the attitude of God. And we know this is true because many who are poor are the recipients of God's salvation. Many who are poor are the recipients of God's salvation. The early church was was not primarily comprised of rich folks. Primarily made up of the poor. The lowly wasn't reflective of the socioeconomic demographic even of of this church, Meadowbrook Baptist Church. Certainly there were exceptions in the life of the church, but the early church was predominantly made up of lower class individuals, lower class folks. So what James is communicating here is God obviously has a heart for the lowly, has a heart for the poor. So as followers of Him, as believers in Jesus Christ, that you and I must as well. And this is similar to, to what we read in James chapter 1, verse 9, where we read that believers in humble circumstances, low circumstances, should take pride in their high position. Their high position. We read here in verse 5 that those who are poor in the eyes of the world, if they know Christ, are rich in faith and will inherit the kingdom. Just like the first time that you ride in an airplane or a helicopter a hot air balloon or go skydiving or whatever it is, the first time that you're above the surface of the earth, several hundred feet above the surface of the earth, your perspective on the earth changes dramatically. No longer do you view everything through the lens of what you see when you simply walk around at ground level. Likewise, believers in Christ, as Christians who believe this book, we know that the social snobbery that is so characteristic of the world and a worldly way of thinking is short-sighted and superficial, to use the words of one commentator. Because those who perhaps are poor in this world but know Christ are rich in faith. Because they know the Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. They know the great I Am. They know the everlasting Father. They know the the bread of life and the living water. And so because God does not discriminate against the lowly in society, neither should we, neither can we. In fact, we read in Scripture, 
about the character of God in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. We read that the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Romans chapter 2, verse 11, we read that God shows no favoritism. Colossians chapter 3, we read a description of the church, the body of Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, saying that in the body of Christ, there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. In other words, knowing Christ changes things. Changes the way that we view others. Changes the way that we regard others. And if God cares for the lowly of society, then we dare not discriminate against others. After all, if God had only acted on the basis of external things, what seat would we have been given? dare say it wasn't or wouldn't have been a, a seat of honor. We wouldn't have been given an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade away that is kept in heaven for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Thank God that He is a God of mercy and compassion, grace, not treating us as we deserve, but treating the lowly creatures like you and me with undeserved compassion and kindness. So Christians must shun favoritism because it is inconsistent with the attitude of God. And we see here that honoring those who exploit God's people is ludicrous. Honoring those who exploit or take advantage of God's people is ludicrous. Look back at verses 6 and 7. James says, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to to whom you belong? In other words, what apparently was happening here is that some poor believers that comprise the church or churches that James is writing to were the very targets of some of the exploitations of the rich in that society. That there were wealthy individuals that were taking advantage of the poor, and specifically poor Christians for their own gain, for their own personal and economic gain. And some of these very same ones are the ones that are showing up at the assemblies, the church assemblies, and being regarded with honor, showing no regard for for Christ, because they're showing no regard for these followers of Christ. Verbally and physically abusing them. In other words, what James is saying is, how foolish can you be? To give special treatment and special honor and special status to the very ones who take advantage of you as God's people. So because God has a heart for the lowly, because His attitude is an attitude that extends salvation without favoritism to the lowly of the earth. Let's dwell on the undeserved grace of God. 
dwell on the undeserved grace of God in our, our own lives. My favorite, one of my favorite passages, Scripture is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and following. If you've paid attention, you've probably picked up on that because referenced it many times, but reads this way. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The more that we dwell on the undeserved grace of God in our lives, the more that we look at the character of God and the way that He has acted and interacted with His creatures, with His people, the less inclined we will be to show partiality and favoritism to others. So Christians must shun favoritism because it is inconsistent with the attitude of God. And lastly, we see here that Christians must shun favoritism because it is condemned by God's royal law. It's condemned by God's royal law. Look back at verses 8 through 13 quickly. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers, forever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, i.e., showing favoritism, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Two sub-truths I want us to see from these verses. The first is this. Favoritism violates God's law of love. Favoritism violates God's law of love. James references in verse 8 this royal law found in Scripture. And then he tells us what it is. We don't have to be in question about what it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus references, did he not? Matthew chapter 22, verse 40, he said that loving your neighbor and loving the Lord your God summarize all of the law and the prophets. In other words, summarize all of the Old Testament Scriptures, the Scriptures that Jesus himself was referencing at the time. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 and following. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And we know in the words of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, he expanded who our neighbor is to include everyone. We're commanded as Christians to love our neighbors as ourselves. And then we see here the second sub-truth that we see, verses 12 and 13, is that the coming judgment of God will reveal that true Christians are merciful. 
coming judgment of God will reveal that true Christians are merciful. Now look back at these final two verses with me. And these are verses that if we don't understand and rightly understand what's being communicated here, they're a bit scary. Look back at verse 12. So speak and act, literally, so speak and so act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. It's the law of Christ that brings freedom from the penalty of sin and freedom from, from not being able to live up to the law, not being able to obey God. Verse 13, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I, I don't know about you. When God judges me, I hope that He judges me with mercy. And so as Scripture is saying here that by my mercy towards others, I can then earn the mercy of God in my own life. If we were interpreting this verse in isolation, perhaps we would come to that conclusion. We know Scripture doesn't teach that. We know the Scripture teaches that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. So what is being communicated here? I believe what James is saying here in verse 13, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, thus God is saying here in verse 13, that, that my mercy and your mercy towards others is an indication of our salvation. An indication of a transformed heart. An indication of someone who has recognized their own sin and recognized the abundant mercy of God and turned to Christ for salvation. Mercy is not, not the basis of our salvation. Don't, don't earn entrance into Heaven based on how merciful we, are, we, we were and are in this life. But it is a demonstration of the genuineness of our faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, our mercy toward others is evidence of our faith in Jesus Christ. Because favoritism is condemned by God's royal law, let's practice love and mercy towards our neighbors. Practice love and mercy towards your neighbor. God desires His people, His children, to be characterized by love and mercy towards others. So let's do just that. There's no place for favoritism among Christians. This is one of those truths that I think we all know. We know how difficult it is to to carry out and to practice in real life. According to Scripture, there's no place for favoritism among Christians because it's inconsistent with the attitude of God and because it's condemned by God's royal law. So we've covered a lot of ground today in this passage. So if we were going to summarize this, the truth of this passage into a single, succinct truth, can you get that word out for a second, that we could take with us and remember what God is saying here and digest it and meditate on it and apply it to our lives, we might say something like this. The character, example, and law of God prohibit practicing partiality. The character, example, 
and law or requirement of God prohibit practicing partiality. Now, some of you were so sure that I was going to say favoritism that you already put it in the blank. But I got to keep you on your toes, you know. The character, example, and law of God prohibit practicing partiality. What impact will that truth have on us in this church, in this place, if we truly took it to heart today? Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to look at it today. But we pray that you would remind us of the truths of your word day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, as we seek to follow you, as we seek to faithfully follow Jesus Christ. To have living or genuine or true faith in Jesus Christ. Father, lead us now as we seek to respond to you as we sing praises to you, as we bow before you, perhaps even make commitments to you as your people. Lord, lead us now. May you be glorified in us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.